I V M. Chapter Ten. The world isn't flat, and who cares? Even though ninety-nine percent of us feel we are unequal to a task at some point in our lives, entrepreneurship provokes us to confront and conquer that myth. Luck and inequality are two sides of the same coin. When you have that coin in hand, throw it as far as you can and walk away. You don't want it. Now, start building your dream. When it comes to luck, few of us will admit to getting more than our share. Does this sound familiar? Other people are lucky. I carry on despite being dealt a losing hand. I'm not successful because I haven't been gifted a wealthy family, proper education, ready funding for my business. Luck, David Levine writes, always seems like it belongs to someone else. I know a lot of people who would agree. Maybe you do as well. But I'm not a big believer in luck. Not if by luck you mean that any one person or business has an inherent advantage over another. I do believe you could be in the right place at the right time in your career. Taking advantage of this, however, requires effective planning, a high level of preparedness and openness, and an evolving mindset. One of the most prevalent and persistent obstacles in the path of entrepreneurship in India today is the notion that luck or its lack plays a major role in how successful or not you'll be when you unleash your ideas into action. At all stages of your journey, you need to downplay the idea of luck as a necessary ingredient for building strong businesses. Rather, the real source of success is people who generate their own breaks by working hard and focusing on a goal. A common and prevalent superstition in theatre is to wish actors good luck by telling them to break a leg. But no actor worth his salt will go on stage without knowing his lines. In that sense, acting and business are alike. Both demand proper preparation and foresight before the journey even begins. Lackluster preparation never leads to the desired outcome, which is why many a sports coach has told his players that luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Positivity, a forward-looking plan, and self-confidence are also necessary for the road to open up in front of you. Evangelize your ideas, share them with anybody who will listen, and even those who won't. and talk to other entrepreneurs professionals or mentors these interactions create opportunities through various levels of contact you'll never know when you will strike a chord with someone who says i like the idea have you met so and so can i put you in touch with him you gain confidence and start to think this is going to happen if it doesn't happen today with scale it'll happen at some other stage i'll keep going Sometimes though we spend too much time over analyzing the situation. When I talk to someone caught in that cycle I tell him create opportunities by being less selective not more. So many of us mull and think and then mull some more. Before we know it the moment has passed and so is the opportunity. We all know that fortune favors the brave, but fortune can't help the not present. In my early days whenever a meeting 
call or travel plan didn't result in a solid lead or a possible deal, I considered it a waste of time. But as I saw the circle of life play out again and again, I changed my mind. Like when a meeting several years ago with people in one organization became a great starting point for fresh engagement as they moved up and on in their careers. Or when a get-together with ex-colleagues or a series of meetings with a potential global partner or client came up dry, only to turn into a great opportunity a few years later with an unexpected call. Or when a pitch that seemed like a colossal waste of time and team investment morphed into the biggest creative idea or product one had ever put together. Maybe what I've just described is luck of a sort, that willingness to keep open multiple options and create a culture of inclusiveness, listening to ideas and storing them away for future reference. From the outside, however, what appears to be a lucky break could instead be the results of years of cultivating leads and following up on the longest of shots. Unless you actively seek opportunity, you have no idea how many doors could open up for you. Over the years, I've also learned to stand by people, colleagues, clients, suppliers and partners, when they're down and out of the race, powerless. It's not a natural reflex. In a highly competitive world that demands so much of your time, standing by people sounds like your last priority. I'm not recommending this as a strategy. It has to be genuine and heartfelt or else don't bother. But rest assured, when they bounce back, they will. Everyone does. You and they are going to have a much stronger bond and a deeper understanding of each other's ambitions and goals. Perhaps sowing the seeds for an opportunity neither saw coming. If you do all the right things, are you inviting what people will call luck when you succeed? Let them call it what they want. In his book, The World is Flat, A Brief History of the 21st Century, Thomas Freeman described how global technologies and the free exchange of goods and services have leveled the playing field in business over the last couple of decades. A lot of observers took Friedman's claims to mean that the advantage some leaders, CEOs or entrepreneurs had over others would be erased by the new rules. Anybody who has spent much time in the trenches, though, realizes that the world will never truly be flat. And who cares? Not everybody flies with tailwind. Some entrepreneurs start out with more momentum than others. The key to success is not perceiving what others have as an advantage or a disadvantage. A common concern from those not to the manner born is that others have a massive advantage when it comes to starting and growing a business. They have wealth, no worries, and all the freedom in the world to do what they choose. Stop wasting your time worrying about what everyone has. And realize that at more than one stage in your career or business cycle, you'll find yourself in the right place at the right time. Maybe wealth gives one person a leg up on another who has to work hard to score in the first round. But money only helps cushion that start. Wealth in no way ensures success. Life is about the next 10 years and more, not just today. And the law of averages works for each of us, leaders, professionals, entrepreneurs, just as it does for everybody else. Come to think of it, 
the ingredients that make all great leaders or entrepreneurs look a whole lot like the recipe for luck. The first time we sought to go public at UTV, the markets crashed. The second time, right into the tank. After that one, some investment banker made a snide remark in passing. Hey, Ronnie, are you planning to go public? Because if you are, I'm exiting the market. Even though he was joking, his point was valid. I wasn't someone with tailwind on my side. And if I hadn't developed a thick skin over the years, I would have taken those remarks personally and thought, I'm never going public. Twice? Come on. What are the odds? I'm unlucky. But when I had some time to think about it rationally, I wondered, why the hell am I sitting here with the weight of the world on my shoulders? Global markets have crashed. Who am I to think this has anything to do with me, that the cosmos cares in the least about my public offering? Hundreds of thousands of people must have suffered the same setback or worse. Not everyone is dealt a straight flush. It would be unfortunate indeed if you had a 30-year career and never get a solid break. But if you're running a vada pao shop in a small town, what can you expect in terms of luck? That one fine day everyone's going to say, hey, I've got to have a vada pao and I know exactly where I'm going to go get it. Suddenly your sales go up 3x? Not going to happen. But this other guy on the other side of town is book space in a new mall with growing footfall. In three months, his sales are thrice yours. Did he get lucky? Did you get unlucky? Neither. You create your own environment. Then you take advantage of the opportunity. When the team and I envisioned Hangama, many media observers, colleagues and others saw the channel's eventual success and its subsequent sale to Disney as a stroke of luck. Not true. The idea worked because of a laser vision, tremendous planning, disruptive programming and bold marketing. Most of all, we went with our gut and stuck with our convictions. As I think of it now, I recall it was one hell of a lot of hard work, a great deal of fun and excitement and very little luck. People only believe in coincidences when it's convenient for them to do so. We had a similar experience in movies. After a solid track record of almost 10 years in the industry, I still hear from people all the time, Wow, you caught a few breaks to get to the top, didn't you? As if the odds were always in our favor, the outcome of foregone conclusion. Maybe I should be encouraged by the great numbers of people who seem to have forgotten how many times we've failed over the years. The truth is, as outsiders, we put ourselves out there on the high wire without a net. To fail and not to rebound would have proven our detractors right. Our greatest successes in film had little to do with lucky breaks. We brought persistence, a strong understanding of the market and the audience, confidence in our team and the director's vision, a gut for good scripts, a deep desire to push the envelope and a willingness to do whatever it took to bring it all to the big screen. When our movies flopped, and many did, were we unlucky? When they were hits, had we got lucky? Neither. Exactly how much the odds were stacked up against us and how little luck had to do with the outcome came home to me during one particularly interesting interaction with Rupert Murdoch. When Newscorp still owned a good part of UTV, 
I was in Los Angeles to meet Murdoch in his frugal suite, a modest office, for the leader of one of the world's largest media companies, with an adjoining meeting room that held a maximum of eight, and a small outer space for his two executive assistants. After a 20-minute chat on the overall India macroeconomic scenario and an update on the media industry, he got up from his chair and walked me over to an old aerial photograph of what would eventually become Beverly Hills and Century City. You see this massive patch of land, the buildings? Fox owned all of it. When Cleopatra bombed in 1963, the company was forced to sell three-fourths of it. The company was left with this, he said, tapping his finger on a much smaller parcel. It's some of the most expensive real estate in the world today, he smiled as we moved towards the outer office. Of course, all of that was before my time, before I bought Fox. Murdoch wasn't really making a specific point. UTV had yet to even consider getting into the movie business. But his message was clear. Business at its core can be unpredictable and fragile. Those trucks can come barreling your way at any time. Despite your biggest, most disappointing setbacks, you can and do move on. After all, here was a leader talking about his insights with pride and clarity. Although he could easily have afforded the best art in the world, Murdoch decorated his conference room with this memento mori. Not by accident. As I walked into the parking lot, I thought about my conversation with Murdoch. The world sees Cleopatra as one of the magnum opuses of all time, a grand success that swept the Oscars that year. My mind goes back to the wonderful chemistry between screen legends Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, and I can only think of that film as a classic. As with most things in life, there's another side to every story. One of the most important lessons from the media and entertainment business was not taking anything for granted. We took big risks and had the gumption to back them, digging our heels in when necessary. Those challenges allowed us, forced us, to build a robust, resilient organization. We created opportunities where we could attract more partners because we situated ourselves at the right crossroads, looking at scale when we broke through with innovation. Sometimes we also got it wrong. Higher risks pay higher rewards. That might sound like luck. It's anything but. What we discovered, and what so many entrepreneurs who stay the course and make their own luck discover, is that the outcome is in direct proportion to the risk and effort. However, it sure as hell wasn't all roses. On more than one occasion, I waited alone to take that final call, not knowing if your next product would succeed or crash and burn under its own weight. But on each occasion, I felt I was in the right place at the right time with the right offering, the right team, the right effort and the right instinct. And when you put so many rights together with passion and the desire to climb, you push yourself to the summit. And when things go wrong, as they often do, you need the resilience and maturity to accept, recalibrate, communicate, fix, learn, and move forward. 
blame it on bad luck after so much preparation and you're only fooling yourself. Because I was so enamored with the idea of becoming an entrepreneur, I embraced the uphill climb from those early days, understanding that when I tested my limits, planned for the future, and committed to a clear vision with a strong team, I would make my own luck. With nothing ventured, how can even Lady Luck help you? The days leading to the premiere of Rangde Basanti provided interesting learnings in innovation and resilience. It was also a movie that, once it had released and become a runaway success at the box office, became known to a lot of media watchers as a lucky strike. Despite how groundbreaking we knew the film could be, it wasn't easy to greenlight. In fact, a week after the release, I asked Amir Khan to come to our office to address our entire company. I know I was attracted to the movie, as it was a great role, and for Rakesh it was path-breaking, he told the gathered team. But I have no idea what got Ronnie to go for this. More than balls and guts, I guess he saw something that moved him too. The plot bears little resemblance to any Bollywood stereotype. Our movie has a group of male friends with no serious love interest. A third of the movie is told in flashback. So the narrative moves from the past to the present. There is an English female lead, Alice Patton, who plays the British documentary filmmaker Sue McKinley and delivers her lines beautifully in accented Hindi. And in the end, all the heroes die, targeted as terrorists by the state. When we saw the rough cuts, our team was riding high in anticipation of the movie's reception. But we were in for a big surprise. When it was time to get our censor certificate, usually a formality, the chair of the censor board called me with some bad news. We are not ready to issue the censor certificate, was the apology. Not that we found anything offensive about your film, just that we want you to get an approval from the Air Force and the Defense Ministry before we sign off. The movie's military angle, the death of pilot Ajay Rathod in a Russian MiG crash, hit close to home. That much we knew, since the censor board hesitated to issue a certificate. The implications, though, were disturbing. The news would have been unwelcome for any of our films, but Rangda Basanti was UTV's grandest effort then, and, with the budget of Rs 400 million, our largest investment at that time. We were confident it would be a breakout movie. All those who worked on that film, from Amir to the up-and-coming actors who poured their hearts into the movie, to the crew and director Rakesh Om Prakash Mehra and me, had given their all to make it. When news of the censor board's concerns came in, we rallied the troops and planned a meeting with Rakesh, Amir and the other principals. By the time we gathered at Amir's place in Bandra, the censor board chairman had got back to me with some additional news. Look, we're trying to get a special screening organized tomorrow on an emergency basis with the head of the Air Force, she said, trying her best to sound helpful. We just want them to see the movie. I knew the censor board was just doing their job. As much as I disliked the thought of not getting a censor certificate, it was a no-options directive for sure. No one had objected outright to the movie. Until we got the sensitivities out of the way, though, Rangde Basanti wasn't going anywhere. Of our group, Ahmed was the most vocal about protesting if things didn't go in our favour at the following day's screening. 
He truly believed in the film's powerful message. His stake in the film was at least as significant as everyone else's. I think we've made the movie with a very clean heart, Amir said, with the gravitas of an orator to the group at his home that evening. We've done it in the right spirit. Movies are movies, work of fiction. Nothing more can be expected or demanded of us. He looked around at the somber group and nobody said a word. We all nodded in agreement. We're as patriotic as the next guy, I'm telling you, Ronnie. If they want us to cut a single frame of that film, I'm not going to allow it. In that case, let's not release it. I appreciated Amir's honesty and his passion. A few people applauded and voiced their support. Despite having a lot of skin in the game, I completely agreed with Amir's point of view. Nagging me at the back of my mind, of course, was also the reality of business. We were on the hook for a rupees 400 million loss, plus marketing costs already incurred if the movie got struck down by the military powers that be. We could certainly fight any decision of censoring the film. Without making the requested changes, though, the process could drag on for years. In that time, we would be left with a historical artifact, not an artistically or commercially viable movie. Every story, no matter how important, has a shelf life. So while I agreed in spirit with Amir, I knew our stand wasn't without some potentially serious consequences. We went to Delhi and held the screening as scheduled. The scene outside the auditorium was surreal. Bollywood, the purveyor of fantasy, rubbing elbows with the most powerful military leaders in the country. When word got out about the unusual gathering... No fewer than 200 media people greeted us at the gate with cameras and microphones, hungry for any information they could get about the clandestine goings-on. Little of substance had leaked to the press. We hesitated to talk about such a sensitive issue, especially when it could so quickly turn against us. Assaulted by a flurry of questions, our group squeezed by the crowd and headed into the screening room to learn our fate. Inside, we had our second shock. Not only was the head of the Air Force in attendance, but the heads of the Army and the Navy, as well as the then Defence Minister, Pranab Mukherjee. Sharmila Tagore was there as Chairman of the Censor Board, as well as one of our film's leading ladies, Wahida Rehman, who played Ajay Rathod's mother in the film. The Defence Minister was flanked by these two stoic, beautiful women as he took his seat. Rakesh, Amir and I exchanged greetings with the dignitaries, besides nervous glances with one another, before settling in. Two and a half hours later, when the lights came up, Rakesh, Amir and I went in front of the group to answer questions. The heads of the army and the navy both liked the film and had little to say. I really enjoyed the movie too. What's the problem? The defence minister asked with a shrug. In Rangde Basanti, much of the blame for Ajay's death falls on the shoulder of the defence minister. Clearly, Pranab Mukherjee wasn't bothered by the parallel. The last to speak was the head of the Air Force, who looked pointedly at each of us while composing his thoughts. Mr. Khan, Mr. Mera, Mr. Skruwala, thank you for sharing your work with us, he said, choosing his words carefully. I think it's a fine movie. We've never done this before. 
he made a sweeping motion with his arm to the assembled audience, and we would never censor a movie except under extreme circumstances. You should do whatever you plan on doing. Go ahead and release the film. He paused. We all breathed a sigh of relief. The crisis averted. All I can tell you, he continued, is that I get about ten calls a month from the mothers of my boys who fly the mix. Of course, they're concerned about their son's safety. We all are. Who wouldn't be? But after this movie, I'm going to get a hundred calls a month. With that, he sat back and folded his hands across his lap. Best of luck. We were elated at the military's response and grateful for their support. But the words of the head of the Air Force also struck a strong chord with us. This was reality. When each of the heads drove away from the screening, they sportingly gave interviews to the assembled media. After coming within a hair's breadth of having our film made irrelevant by an unfavorable censor hearing, we couldn't have bought more or better publicity. News of the meeting was on primetime news for an entire week after the screening. A part of me understands that if the film hadn't been released, we'd have had different challenges. I'm equally confident that even in that case, we'd have worked to find solutions. At the end of the day, when your job is to lead, you'll adapt to the circumstances that are presented to you and move forward with the best intentions. Rangde Basanti succeeded for us because everyone in attendance at that screening understood that we were showing respect. When you are really, truly genuine about something you believe in, your intentions will come through. We volunteered to hold the screening when we didn't have to. Also, we made a film that wasn't too Bollywood, one that focused instead on learnings, introspection and the value of life. That made all the difference. Nothing says more about an individual and his team than the reaction to the unexpected. How you handle those situations predicts a lot about your future as an entrepreneur. In the end, we went the only way we knew. We were fortunate to have colleagues like Rakesh and Amir on board. It was a great team all round, and none of us were satisfied doing things the way that had always been done. We disrupted a century-old model with a fresh take on film, showing others the way in the process. That's the thing about great teams. When you're confident, strong on conviction, and willing to adapt to whatever business throws at you, you've got nothing to lose. What still fascinates me till date about the reception of Rangde Basanti is how many people told us it was a lucky break. When I heard that, I thought, exactly which part of that was lucky? Nobody backed us. We were out there on our own and pulled it off. To my mind, there was nothing lucky about it. Consistency and the guts to stay with what you believe in tend to silence the naysayers. Inequality is a given. You can take inequality as a challenge or move on, because it never goes away completely. To be honest, that's not necessarily bad news. Starting out as a first-generation entrepreneur, I had no external or financial inputs, no real godfather or mentor. Even with the limited success of laser brushes, I discovered that nobody wanted to fund a contract manufacturing business. When I began in the nascent media space, people didn't even call it a media industry yet. 
Those were good times, though, because I learned to cut my coat according to my cloth. Rather than becoming despondent about any perceived inequality, I embraced the challenge. I get quite rattled when I hear a young person today say, but I'm not getting funding, I'm not getting support, I don't have luck on my side, as an excuse to forego a dream. So wait a minute, I respond. You've asked for 10 million rupees and nobody's willing to give you even half a million? Well, I need 10 million, he says. Why should I go around asking for half a million? Because no one is ready to give you 10 million? Why don't you pick up half a million and work hard to get the next million after that? Go from there. Build your dream a piece at a time. Have you ever thought about it that way? Uh, no. Silence. End of conversation. And that's my point. If you can structure a plan to build a business with half a million rupees or even less, chances are you'll figure out how to get the money. Find a starting point and get on with it. Even if you're alone at base camp, the energy and momentum of your idea will take care of that initial funding, which, despite what you've probably heard, and as I've already said, is the easiest funding you'll ever get. When setting out on your entrepreneurial journey, beware of the thought that equates inequality with failure. Too many entrepreneurial dreams have been crushed by unfounded pessimism. This isn't for me. I don't come from the proper background to make this happen. I'm at a disadvantage in a third world country. How could I possibly make it work? I've heard these comments far too many times. You set extraordinary obstacles for yourself when you get into a negative feedback loop and allow doubt to take over. Also, the cemented social structure is strong in India, perhaps a bit less strong than in the past, but still a deterrent for an entrepreneur, not self-confident enough to jump in with both feet. You need to talk realistically to your family about who you are and aspire to be. The problem with inequality isn't that it makes realizing your dream more difficult in reality, but that it distracts you from your vision. Look in the mirror, not at everyone else, when on your entrepreneurial journey. There you'll see the truth and the inner strength that'll keep you moving in the right direction. When I took that fateful trip to London and found the toothbrush machines at the plant, I needed £2,400, the customs duty, and a license to import post-haste. I didn't have that kind of money, but I didn't let that make me feel unequal. I knew I wouldn't get the money from my parents, I didn't ask, but the ecosystem was one where, even though I had to work that much harder to get our first client's letter of intent to secure the loan, the money was available if I proved equal to the challenge. Finding a means to an end and creatively solving problems is all a part of being an entrepreneur. No excuses. In fact, a lack of funding today is less of an issue than it has ever been. Frugality and bootstrapping are assets in any business anywhere in the world. An entrepreneur with frugality in his DNA will make fewer mistakes build more efficient cost models, plan better for the future, and increase his chances of success over the person next door, who just got well capitalized and feels, mistakenly and arrogantly, that he doesn't need to make those difficult decisions. When you think some people have more, chances are they take a lot more for granted. 
when you work for everything you have, it means more to you. At the end of the day, the probability of your success may be higher than the other person's, the one you think has an insurmountable advantage over you. Therefore, you're not unequal. That simple statement is the essence of the entrepreneurial enterprise. Believing yourself unequal marks the mindset of retreat. Think more like General George Patton when he realized that his tanks didn't have any more gasoline. Screw it, he said. We're going on foot. We'll push the Germans back to Berlin. The minute you say, I'm disadvantaged, you're comparing yourself to everyone else. And therein lies much of the challenge for India, with a generation of entrepreneurs ready to dream their own dreams, but facing fear and uncertainty, a conservative mindset, a low appetite for risk, no gift of the gab, no backers, and a general lack of confidence. In most cases, when someone with a dream doesn't accept the challenge of making it real, you can trace the diffidence back to one of these reasons. Maybe for you, and for a lot others, inequality means, I come from a smaller city. I've not stepped out. What could I know? But if I could sit down for two hours and discuss your family's background, dad's in the army or working with the Indian railways, maybe you move from small town to small town every two years, or whatever else it may be, what do I see? An opportunity for you to take advantage of the real Indian market. The smaller cities that will be major consumption centers in the future. The rural markets you understand so well. I do not see a distorted picture for you of your luckier classmate who went to a university in Delhi and aspires only to create the thousand most popular iPhone app. Entrepreneurs don't worry about whether or not the world is flat. They're too busy building businesses. Chapter Summary Entrepreneurs and leaders at any stage of their journey need to downplay the notion that luck is vital for building a strong company. They should also avoid making the absence of luck their most persistent obstacle. Stand by people when they are down and out, and they will be with you when they bounce back. Go for calculated risk that you can afford to take, and then dig your heels in. Higher risk do yield higher rewards. If these risks are backed by great execution and pre-planning, this has nothing to do with luck. When things go wrong, it's not ill luck, just an opportunity to accept, recalibrate, communicate, fix, learn, and move forward. Taking advantage of being in the right place at the right time requires effective planning, a high level of preparedness, openness, and a progressive mindset. Stop drawing comparisons with others and measuring yourself against what they have or don't have. It's not going to help your cause, only distract you. Also, remember, inequality is a given, but inequality does not portend failure. You can take it as a challenge or move on. Let your positive approach destroy all notions of inequality. Indeed, Entrepreneurship provokes us to confront and conquer the myth of inequality.